listening to the home of cool, irreverent, and entertaining talk right here on L.A. Talk Radio. You're listening to The Art of Love with your host, Lucia, right here on L.A. Talk Radio. And welcome to The Art of Love. My name is Lichia. I'm your host and dating and relationship expert. And I'm here to entertain, educate, and enlighten you about love, dating, and relationships. Solve your dating dilemmas. Answer your emails. Take your calls. And, of course, speak to authors of books, which I find fascinating and interesting. And as usual, I've done it again, if I may say so myself. <laughs> I found yet another book that will help us to understand this crazy thing called love. And it's called Decoding Love. Why it takes 12 frogs to find a prince and other revelations from the science of attraction. So let me get the author on. Hey, Andy, how's it going? Hi, how are you? Good. So, uh, let's see. Let me read your bio first, then you can tell us all about decoding love. (laughs) (laughs) Andrew Trees is a novelist and journalist who graduated from Princeton in 1990 and has a Ph.D. from the University of Virginia in American History. He's written for the Chicago Tribune, Philadelphia Inquirer, and the Washington Post. And uh, what is your website for this book, by the way? Uh, www.decodinglove.com is it just decoding love, or did you say something? It's just decodinglove.com. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay. I think also andrewtrees.com will get you to decodinglove.com. So either of those is fine. Right, okay. So what is the decoding love all about? Well, you know, when, uh, when I was growing up, my sisters were big fans of those relationship books that come out all the time. And right. And they would always <laughs> tell me to read them, and, and frankly, I thought they were terrible. And... Uh, and we used to joke about it, and I told them, there must be something better. There must be some real science out there. And, you know, I hadn't, that, that, that was sort of in the back of my mind, and then uh, I stumbled across a couple of studies that basically showed me that there was some really good science out there. And so I thought I would basically go and search and see what actual research had found about why people are attracted to each other. And, you know, I hadn't really, when I started the book, I didn't know that much about these different fields, but I was amazed by how much uh, people have discovered about why we're attracted to people we are, how we're attracted, how it all works. It's pretty fascinating. Yes, as we're about to find out. So let's start from the uh, subtitle for your book. So why does it take 12 frogs to find a prince? (laughs) (laughs) That comes from one of the sections of the book deals with something called game theory, which has been used for all sorts of things. But one of the things they've started to apply it to is looking at basically how human beings pair off and mate. And... uh, I won't bore you with all the math, but they ran all sorts of statistical studies using something called the dowry game, and and it's kind of this, uh, it's basically a version of a game where you uh, you have a hundred women or men, whichever whichever you prefer, a hundred women to choose from, uh-huh. and you get to look at them one at a time, and each comes with a dowry, and your job is to pick the woman with the highest dowry, and so they ran this scenario with all sorts of things. If you want, if you want the best chance of picking the the number, you know, the highest dowry, you have to basically go through. Uh, the first 37 people you see, and then you pick the next highest salary, which gives you about a 37% chance of finding the highest salary. But those are kind of 
what they were really interested in looking at is the best way of sort of finding someone, let's say, who's, who's really good, like in the top 10% of the dating pool. And they ran this with all sorts of scenarios, from all the way from 100 people to, to you know, 10,000 people. And that the rule they came up with was basically try a dozen. That if you go out with a dozen people and then pick the next person who's better than that first dozen, you have a pretty good chance of ending up with someone in the top 10% of the dating pool. Uh-huh. So that's the subtitle. Right. <laughs> so you have, to date, you have to date 12 people first. And then the next person that's better than those first 12, that's the one you pick. Oh, okay. All right. Then I missed my uh, window of opportunity. I've dated more than 12. <laughs> well, no. So that's the thing. Just because it, that doesn't mean that you'll pick like the 13th person. I think the, the average they came up with, like, I might get the number a little off, but I think they said on average people end up dating about 33 people before they get to someone who's better than those first 12. Ah, okay. So, Good. You, so you shouldn't expect it to be like the 13th or 14th person. It actually takes a while to find someone better than that person. Yeah, exactly. Before. Yeah. I wish it was that easy that it was just the 13th person. <laughs> I know, exactly. That's right. <laughs> you, just, you, just, you just burn through them one right. and then, you know, before you know it, you're done. You're True done. <laughs> now, uh, you said that men are quick to lie in order to have sex, and so women are better off at being skeptical, or that they should be skeptical all the time? Well, this is the funny thing is, you know, women actually have certain built-in evolutionary advantages over men in the sense that their brains tend to have uh, more connections when it comes to things like um, judging the emotions on another person's face and, and things like that. That should give, that should help them sort of uncover when men are lying. But, right. but what the studies have shown is that even though they have this advantage, most women are still not very good at doing it. And since men are so prone to lie in various contexts in relationships, either to get sex or or whatever that uh, most of the people who study this say that the best attitude for women to take is skepticism. Don't believe what he says. Look at what his actions tell you. Look at how he treats you. You know, it's very easy to say, oh, I love you, and, you know, you're the one. It's, it's much different to actually prove it with how you behave. Aha, uh-huh. so make sure the actions match up with the words. That's right. And, and you know, I, I should say this to take, to take us a little farther down this pathway. One of the reasons it's so hard to detect deception is that one thing that happens is they found that people are very good at deceiving themselves. So let's say in the heat of passion when a man really is attracted to a woman and really wants to sleep with her, there's a very good chance that when he tells her he loves her and he wants to be with her, he's convinced himself that that's the case. And it's only after he sleeps with her that he'll wake up the next morning and suddenly think, oh, I, I was wrong, actually. I, I don't love Oops. her the way I thought I did, <laughs> and she may not be the one. So, so men deceive themselves as well, which is one of the reasons why it's so hard to, to figure out whether they're telling the truth or not. So at some point, do men kind of slow down with the lies and tell less lies? <laughs> well, they, they have found actually that, uh, that as men get older, I'm talking a lot older actually. Uh-oh. but like uh, how old? When men, when men get a lot older, they 60. do get better. But I, I should say, women don't get off the hook on this. I mean, there's lots of evidence that women deceive at not quite as great a rate, but it's still at a fairly frequent rate when it comes to, uh, to dating as well. I mean, they did one really funny study where, of course, one of the things that men worry about, of course, is they don't want a woman who's, well, let's, let's say, easy because they, they worry about paternity. They don't want a woman who's going to sleep around on them, and if, they, if she has a child, it may not be his child. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that women have realized is that they should lie about the number of sexual partners they've had yes. and basically lowball the figure. Mm-hmm. So they did this funny study where they asked women, college women how many sexual partners they had, and they gave one number, and then they hooked them up to a fake lie detector and, and told them it was a real lie detector and asked them again how many people they'd slept with, and the number went way up. <laughs> so, so women tend to do the same thing, but they lie about different things. They don't necessarily lie about the same thing. Right. And then also back to the skepticism, you said, so in a relationship, women shut off 
their skepticism. Well, that's right. Evolution has shaped women basically to try to uh, find a man who's willing to commit for the long term because they're the ones who get stuck with the biological fact of not just having the child in their bodies for nine months but actually raising the children. They want a man who's going to stay around and help them with that. And so one of the things that, that their mind has sort of been shaped to do over time is when they find a suitable partner to really develop much more of a bond. And one of the ways is exactly what you're saying, that they're, once they're, they're with a guy, once they've slept with them, once they feel like there's some sort of connection, they actually become much less skeptical and much more willing to kind of take the guy at his word and, and see him as a long-term partner, even if his actions don't demonstrate that. Mm-hmm. So you think maybe that's the reason why women tend to stay with guys that aren't good for them? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, they're... There, there, there are a whole slew of reasons yes. uh, why that why that happens. Although it's interesting, you know, now that uh, sort of in the in the age of uh, of feminism, where women a lot more women have the opportunity to pursue careers and are much more successful financially, uh, the good news is that this has meant that they no longer have the necessarily the pressure economically to stay in a relationship. And they've actually found that women who are successful career wise are much more likely to divorce their husbands than women who have no career. So it basically, mm-hmm. basically by giving them more economic success, right. it's given women the chance to pull the, the uh, escape hatch in the same way that men used to. Right. Well, I don't know if you know that, you know, Karl Marx, he said that economics determined social structure. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly what we're talking about here. I think the one, the kind of one weird way that, that Marx doesn't show with what's going on is that, you know, I think we, we have both this sort of social and cultural level, which can change very quickly, right? I mean, you go back just to the 1950s and the role that women had in society was very different than it is today. Mm-hmm. But then we're also shaped on the evolutionary level, which works so much more slowly. And I think that's one reason why we kind of have a weird situation when it comes to things like mating and when it comes to being married. In some ways, our cultural and social changes are far ahead of where we are in terms of evolution. We're still stuck much back and in, in more in, a, in a sort of a caveman mentality. Right. In fact, speaking of cultural changes, I don't know if you're aware that I specialize in uh, cougar relationships. I know, which I find quite a fascinating phenomenon. <laughs> and in fact, I want to read something from your book here, and then we'll talk about it. Okay. Uh, you said. Uh, I think I know what you're going to read. <laughs> oh, really? What do you think I'm going to read? <laughs> Put you on the I spot. think I made some comment in there where I was sort of dismissive of the cougar phenomenon. I didn't think it was. I didn't think it was a really significant trend. Right. No, I understand that, and a lot of people believe that. But you know, me being on the inside track and uh, you know driving the, the phenomenon myself, um, I have an opposite opinion, obviously. But I totally understand how people can think that we're all crazy. Um, well, I think I've modified my position a little since I wrote the book, so I'll let you read it, and then we can talk about it, because I think, uh, I'm, I'm starting to think that uh, the whole idea of the cougar is more important than I first given it credit for being. Yeah, you may have to do a rewrite. Um, That's right. Yeah, because, no, I understand that, you know, the, biologically, the way we're set up, it's, you know, you, you write the chapter, you know, or just the part, why young women end up with old men and not vice versa. <laughs> and, exactly, exactly. And what you wrote was, an older woman with a younger man violates these norms. We're talking about cultural norms, obviously. There's no cultural reason why this should be the case. Our shock can be traced directly to how evolution has shaped us. That's right. Where it, it typically, because of evolution, men are the ones who really care about fertility, right? And so youth is really important to them. And women tend to care much more about a good provider. So it's okay to be with an older man because that also tends to mean that he's more stable, more financially independent, all those sorts of things. But I think where I got that wrong is I think these days, as more and more women find that kind of success that was traditionally really more o- only available to men, 
that I think that the cougar phenomenon is a real social and cultural phenomenon. It's actually growing in importance more than I gave it credit for. Yeah, because, you know, people go, oh, it's just a trend. People are just jumping on the bandwagon. But, in fact, Newsweek said uh, the cougar will be extinct by next year. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, unless unless you can, unless you, and I, I wouldn't want to do this. I mean, I consider myself a feminist. Unless you turn back the clock and basically yeah. eliminate women from, you know, high-paying, high-power positions, yes. there's no turning back the cougar clock. Because I think once you open that up to the women, cougar clock. there's no reason why then they can seek out young men if not for exactly the same evolutionary reasons, but at least for perfectly good social and cultural reasons. Yeah, the way I put it was, I said, women are out of the cougar closet and we're not going back. That's right. I mean, I think in some ways probably what, what limited it before was not just the, the financial opportunity, but, but the fact that there was more of a social stigma. And I think that's, that's definitely eased over the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah, and also I think the problem that people have is because, you know, obviously men put looks as a high priority. They want their women to be very attractive. And, right. you know, obviously before Botox and the fillers and all that stuff, it was hard to stay attractive over 40. I know, that's exactly, you're absolutely right. And the funny thing is, you know, even though we know that these cosmetic surgeries don't change the underlying youth of the person, they do fool us. I mean, in evolutionary <laughs> terms, you find men respond to those co sort of cosmetic enhancements in exactly the same fashion they would if they were just nature, right? If they mm -hmm. had, if they didn't have anything to do with, with being, you know, with going to a dermatologist and getting Botox or anything like that. Yeah, and then also, so, uh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so you look at someone, I mean, the perfect example, right, and the, I think the one who helps kind of bring this other causes, someone like Demi Moore, right, sure. who looks fantastic, right, looks really young mm -hmm. and is incredibly successful, and she has this, you know, much younger partner, and uh, I think it, it's, it kind of shows with these changes how this is becoming, how this can become, if not, it'll, it'll probably never be the majority, no. of, but a reasonably significant kind of social minority that's going to grow in importance over time. Right, and then also besides the looks, on, uh, you know, women are taking better care of themselves, they're working out, so now their bodies don't, their bodies don't have to fall apart again after age 40. That's right, that's right. Whereas it and, seems... you know, it, it, it makes perfect sense. Women live longer than men, too. I mean, if anyone should be looking for a younger partner, it's a woman, okay. right? So at least she can have this younger <laughs> partner for her lifetime. Right. Otherwise, the women, they marry the older man, then the man dies, they get his money, and then they marry a young guy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it should, it's going to work from now on. That's right. You can, you can, you can work both sides these days. Right? You, can marry the, you can marry the older man and inherit the, the money and then turn around yourself and go after the younger guy. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so, um, now, do you think that, uh, or have you found that humans are naturally monogamous? You know, that's something I explore in the book, and I, I'm married, so obviously I'm part of the monogamous system, but right, uh, right. I think monogamy is, is a system we will always struggle, oh, man, not always, if enough evolution occurs, we may fit more normally in it, but it's something we're always going to struggle with. We clearly, you can see certain biological markers in our own bodies that, that show that we had a, a polygamous past, and the vast majority of societies that have been recorded in human history have been polygamous. So monogamy is a relatively recent and not an entirely comfortable arrangement. Uh, but again, this sort of evolution and social and cultural things go together, right? So mm -hmm. just because it's not the most natural arrangement doesn't mean that, especially in this day and age, that you can't work within monogamy to have a perfectly happy, healthy relationship. I mean, there'll be struggles, right? I mean, men have a greater desire for sexual variety, so that will always be an issue. Um, but it's the kind of thing where they've definitely found that, yeah, to give you two weird examples, mm -hmm. for instance, uh, male and female body size over time has come closer and closer to being equal, 
which mm. is one sign of a monogamous species, so we're clearly moving in that direction. Testicle size is another indication of, of polygamy, mm-hmm. and our testicles indicate that we are a polygamous species. But the amount of sperm that our testicles produce has actually been going down over time. So it seems like that, again, in that direction, there's kind of a, a slow trend towards monogamy. So if we all hang in there long enough... Yes, long <laughs> enough. Okay. One day we may be perfectly happy. <laughs> Do you know why the amount of sperm has gone down over time? Well, just it's, uh, the, the, based on the size of our testicles compared to other animal species, other animal species typically would produce much more sperm. Oh, okay. What, what they theorize, this is not definitively proved, but what they theorize is that as monogamy has become more widespread and as there's been less polygamy and, and kind of less what you might call sperm competition, there's been less need to produce great volumes of sperm. Uh, because one reason why, you, why, one reason why testicle size is an indicator of, of polygamy is that it, you get larger testicles when you have species in which, let's say, males have large-sized harems or when there's a lot of competition for those females. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when there's competition for the females, it means that multiple men may, or multiple males, I should say, may be sleeping with that, with the female. And so the more sperm you can basically put into the game, the better chances are your sperm will be the one to fertilize the egg. Uh-huh. So, you know, uh, gorillas, which have harems, so there's no male competition, they have tiny testicles. And chimps, which have tons of competition, right? They're sleeping with everyone. Mm-hmm. They have huge testicles. And humans fall a little more towards the chimp side of the spectrum than we do the gorilla side of the spectrum. Okay. And then you said something which I love, and I'm glad you said this, <laughs> and I'm sure you have science to back it up. You said women should worry a lot less about getting married, and men should worry a lot more. That's right. And this is one of the funny things in the book that I found. I think there are a lot of paradoxical things, you know. You look at the stereotypes. It's, the stereotype is always that it's the poor woman who doesn't get married, right, who's the spinster, who's yeah. alone, surrounded by her cats. And, and men are always seen as these great, lucky guys, these swinging bachelors, right, who mm-hmm. have this fantastic life. The funny thing is that they found that in health terms, men benefit far more from marriage than women do. I mean, women benefit a little bit when they get married, but men, all sorts of things in terms of their health, in terms of their chances of dying of some sort of heart disease or dying earlier, all those sorts of things go way down once they marry. And they've also found that men, on average, are happier in marriage. Women, it's a little more ambiguous. I mean, some studies show actually that single women tend to be happier than their married counterparts. Mm -hmm. So if you look at it just as a kind of overall picture of who benefits the most from marriage, men seem to benefit in much more clear-cut ways than women do at times. Yeah, and yet isn't it funny that they're the guys that are most reluctant to get into a marriage? Well, again, and this is you can trace this back to evolution, right? Which is that part of what men, the the early days of kind of you know human evolution, shaped men to basically want to procreate with lots of females and spread their genetic material. Right. And so men are always going to be much more reluctant to commit than than women. Or I shouldn't say always, but let's say for the foreseeable future. Yes. To commit that women are because women are the ones who have always had to bear that that cost of having the egg, having the child, you know, raising the child. And so there's a lot more pressure on them to basically try to find a man who's willing to commit to them for the long term. So maybe we just need to have them read that section of the oh, the whole book, the section of your book <laughs> <laughs> that says they'll live longer. Maybe that will uh, inspire them to get well, married. I know. I was, you know, <laughs> if, if there are any single men who are listening to this, they should definitely, you know, get take married. a look at the, at the health evidence. Marriage would be great for you in terms of your longevity and also all sorts of other benefits. I mean, I, these are going to sound funny, and, you know, it, it is just numbers that economists have come up with, but they've come up with all these numbers that basically show that 
that people who are in a happy marriage, and the, the key is not just marriage, right. but a happy marriage, of course. there are all sorts of benefits that they quantify in dollar terms. So that a happy marriage can be worth in various ways tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars towards your happiness, which, by which I mean, like, if you, if you say, like, okay, be married, I can't remember the exact figure, but something like it's worth, I mean, like $100,000 a year in happiness, which mm-hmm. gives you the same amount of happiness that earning an extra $100,000 would, which right. I always say, can you, could you find a, an easier way to earn an extra $100,000 yeah. a year? Uh-huh. I mean, that, you know, how can you turn that deal down? <laughs> right, exactly, if it's the happy marriage, of course. That's right, that's right. Um, but then you also said that for women, not being married shortens their life more than cancer or poverty? Well, that's the thing. It, I think, these, again, these statistics are worse for men than they are for women. But mm-hmm. they, they found, and the reason is, this, that sounds pretty extreme, right? Yeah, that not being married scary. Will, will, alert, <laughs> will shorten your life more I than very pieces. The reason is, for a lot of people, when they get married, this is particularly true for men, I think this is why those statistics are so clear for them. When... Uh, when you're not married as a single guy, you tend to do things that are bad for you. For instance, you tend to drink a lot more, you tend to smoke a lot more, you tend to eat less healthy food, you tend to eat more fatty food. So it's not just the relationship per se. There are all sorts of things that go along with being in a good relationship that will also increase your health. Right. Lifestyle. So I also in one wild card, which we haven't talked about, which is that one of those things is they found, unsurprisingly, that people in a married relationship have more regular sexual activity than people who aren't married. And sex has really good health benefits as well. It's good for your circulation, it boosts your immune system, it makes you less depressed. So just having a regular sexual partner in marriage is a huge boon to your health. Right. But, but okay, getting back to what I had said, it, you had written that for a woman not being married, it shortens her life more than cancer or poverty. Uh, you know, uh, it's the it's the same thing. I don't. It's I it's I I do remember the poverty thing. I don't remember uh-huh. the cancer thing. I, I'll have to look through there. But I'm sure you looked at it more recently. Yes. <laughs> it's the same thing with women in the sense that again, you don't take care of yourself. Often, you don't take care of yourself as well when you don't have a partner who is there, kind of watching out for you as well. So, mm. the same thing holds true for women that holds true for men, right? So. Uh, for instance, I can tell you recently, you know, I was uh, I had a persistent cough. My wife's like, usually go see the doctor. I saw the doctor. It was no big deal. But that's the kind of thing I think when you're single, a lot of times you're like, oh, I'm fine. You right. struggle through. When there's someone else there, they do things like they watch out for your health. They watch out, you know, if you're gaining a lot of weight quickly. Little things like that that can really make a huge difference in your overall health. So a partner who cares about you, keeps an eye on you, is a huge health benefit. Right. Um, you know, I've always said, you know, I was looking for the fountain of youth, and I, I, I said that, I, I jokingly say, but only half jokingly, of course, that not being married and not having children is the fountain of youth. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, I mean, it, especially if it's a bad marriage, it stresses you out, and you don't have as much time for, I'm talking about for women, you know, it, uh, you don't have as much time to take care of yourself, and, I mean, you know, you see the wives running around in the sweats and their hair up with no makeup. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is why this is why the key issue is the happy marriage, right? Because I think you, you can look at it in three ways, right? If you if you're in an unhappy marriage, that's worse than being single, right? Because they found that unhappy marriages create all sorts of stress on you, psychologically, emotionally, and that has really big repercussions for for your health. Mm-hmm. So, an unhappy marriage, that's bad. Single, right? A lot depends on how you are. Some people are very yeah. happy being single. Mm-hmm. I, I think women in particular, men do as well, but and this may be why the stereotypes come into play, women are more companionable in general. I think there's a certain amount of loneliness that creeps in. That can take its toll. If you're in a happy marriage, 
you find you get all sorts of health benefits, right? As opposed to the stress, you find someone who helps you relax, right? So you're, so you're even more relaxed probably than the single person. So it's one of those things, a lot depends on the type of marriage you're in, but if you're in a really good marriage, it can have all sorts of positive benefits. Right. The key is happy marriage. That's right. Happy <laughs> marriage. That's the key. Not yes, just marriage, right. happy marriage. Exactly. Now, you also said that living together is not a good idea, which, is, which I totally agree with. That's right. Well, what the studies have shown is that people who live together, even if they end up getting married, are more likely to get divorced than people who've never lived together before they got married. And the reason, they're not sure about this, but the, what they think is that once you live together without being married, it sort of puts in, in your mind the idea that this is not a permanent relationship. Mm-hmm. That you can always pull the plug at some point if you're unhappy. And one of the things that a lot of the research shows is that all marriages, almost all marriages, I should say, go through phases. Right? Even happy marriages are not blissfully happy all the time. Right. And so if you have the kind of attitude where you're like, as soon as I'm unhappy, I'm getting out of this relationship, then that's probably, you're probably not going to last long-term in a relationship because there are going to be rough patches. Mm-hmm. And so when you, when you live together before you get married, it sort of plants that seed early on, that this is, a, this is just a temporary situation, and if I become unhappy, it's something that I can change. And I think that's one of the hard lessons about marriage, right, that even happy marriages you have to be willing to struggle through some of those hard times and work through things. Yeah, because I think people go into a marriage thinking, oh, now it's going to be happily ever after. We'll never argue again. Everything's going to be blissful. Well, that's right. I mean, that's one of the, one of the big things I try to argue about in, in the book is that we have this really misguided notion of what a good relationship should be. And we have, I think, exactly the idea you're saying about, which is this kind of Cinderella vision, right? That once you find that, that perfect person, you end up together, and, and there's no problem, right? That's the end of it. Mm-hmm. And, and the crazy thing is they've done studies, and they found that people in arranged marriages, right, who haven't chosen their partner, end up happier on average than people who are in Western-style marriages where you've chosen your partner. Yeah. And the reason, they think, is that people go in with such high expectations in Western marriages that it's really tough to meet those expectations. In fact, one study, a long-term study of couples, showed that those couples who were most in love when they got married, right? They mm-hmm. had that whole dewy-eyed thing where mm-hmm. they thought they found the perfect partner. They were the most likely to get divorced. So does that mean that uh, Khloe Kardashian and uh, Lamar Odom are going to divorce? <laughs> no, I do have my worries <laughs> about that couple. <laughs> when they got married... I think... That, I, well, I, I think that, go ahead. I, I would say, I think the problem is, right, we we get caught up in that in that kind of love where you're just in this sort of passionate frenzy. And that's wonderful. I mean, I know how intoxicating that sensation can be, but that's really more of a chemical kind of love. And that, all the studies show that that fades over time. And so whether it fades in three months or whether it fades in two years, if that's your, your benchmark for how the relationship has to be, that's going to go away. So you have to, be learn, you have to learn to really find a deeper level for that, for that relationship to work. And it's not that you lose all passion, but it's going to kind of burn at a lower heat. So you have to be willing to accept that, that the relationship's going to change over time and not expect to always be in that phase where, you know, you, 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 you just think about the person all the time, you can't sleep, you can't eat. Uh, that, that's really just a temporary thing. And to expect the relationship to sustain that is really setting yourself up for failure. Yeah, because if it was always like that, then no one would ever get anything done. That's right. We would still be living in caves. Exactly. (laughs) Just sitting there dreaming about uh, the other person. That's right. (laughs) So it's a matter of survival. Um, Now, you also say it's better for women to be prudish rather than slutty. 
Well, that's right. Uh, one of the big things they found, and there, there are all sorts of ways to talk about this, mm-hmm. and this basically goes back to the animal kingdom again, is that uh, it, it's, it's something you, one, one way to think about it is what you might call a signal you're sending off to the opposite sex. So if you're a woman and you sleep with a guy pretty easily, it shows that you think you're not in really high demand and you don't have to hold out for the right guy. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're someone who is selective and really takes your time, doesn't immediately sleep with a guy, you're sending the signal that you're basically a high-quality mate, that you don't need to sleep with every man that comes along who wants to sleep with you, and that you can basically hold yourself back and wait for something better. And this, this holds true. They found something they called the effective shift. After guys sleep with a woman, typically, they become less committed and less in love with her. And so for women, you want to... Men are going to be very upsetting. For women in general, you really want it as much as possible. However long you normally wait to sleep with a guy, mm-hmm. you should wait longer. Right. Right. So I always joke, like my my rule of thumb, if you're if you're a woman, is you should just double it. Right. If you're asleep with a guy after the third date, kind of woman, go for six days. <laughs> and if you're a one month kind of woman, go for two months. That longer in this case is always better. Right. But then some people they sleep on. You know, I mean, like after six dates, that still doesn't seem like a lot. Well, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, whatever you do normally, just double it, right? If six days seems short to you, if you're a 10-day person, then wait 20 days, right? Whatever, whatever's your norm, make it longer. That's my attitude. See, I tell them wait at least three months. See, I think that's great. Uh, because <laughs> that, no, seriously, I think that's a really good idea uh-huh. because I think three months, especially if you're dating pretty regularly, that's giving you enough time to really establish whether this is a guy who uh, is demonstrating consistent interest in you, who's not just there for a one-night stand, it's not just there for a quick hookup, mm-hmm. and you've had a chance to really develop, begin to develop a bond that's beyond merely physical attraction. Right. So I think that's a really, I mean, three months, a lot of people, especially young people yes, living in big cities, I, they can't wait. are like, what, are you crazy? I know, You're I know. Insane. I know. But the studies really show that women who wait longer are generally more successful when it comes to dating. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I told recently a guy who's about 28 about waiting the three months. He's like, what? He goes, I, he goes, I had to wait one month once, and that was torture. Well, they found, it's funny, they, they, one of the a recent study I read by uh, some British researchers was that they, they looked at precisely that, and they found that the women who waited longer did, in fact, uh, attract higher-quality mates. And, and ironically, you would think high-quality men might think, oh, I can sleep with someone much easier, but they're, they actually are attracted to that kind of woman who values herself enough not to sleep with them right away. So they actually tended to get men who were higher quality than women who had sex quickly. Right. Okay, so once and for all, then men do not, um, do men do care whether you sleep with them on the first date or not, meaning that if you do, they're going to judge you harshly. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and this is, you know, I, there's lots of research, but I also found this when I did interviews uh, with, with men when I was doing the book. Anecdotally, almost universally, you know, the quickest way for a woman to turn herself from someone a man is interested in long term to somebody who's interested in short term is to sleep with them too quickly. Right. Exactly. I know, because I've had people on the show say, oh, no, men don't care. Go ahead. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> They'll tell you they don't care. Right. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that didn't sound right. And, um, yeah, you said that, um, as you said earlier, men, after they sleep with you, with the women, they have less interest. And whereas for women, it's the total opposite. They have. That's right. That's exactly right. So it's, you know, I think some women, I interviewed some women who clearly at times have practiced what you might call a strategy of kind of sexual uh, commitment, where they thought, okay, if I sleep with him, then he'll be more committed to me. Uh That is exactly the opposite of what happens. So for 
women who try to use sex as a tool to get a man to become more committed, that's almost guaranteed to backfire. Right. So, and then also because the women, they react, they, they start to like the guy more once they do have sex. That's right. So it's a double whammy, right? They think they're going to get him to commit more, and he is likely to commit less, and they're going to find themselves feeling even more committed than they were before <laughs> they slept with him. So it's a catch-22. That's not a good deal for women. No, and so, um, so I think maybe the solution is to take it in stages, like instead of having, when, once you do have uh, intimate contact, instead of having intercourse right away, maybe like, you know, on one date, start with kissing, maybe then a week later, move to something else, et cetera, et cetera. So you spread it out like over a month. Well, that's right. You know, that, that's actually, uh, I think, a great idea. And, and, you know, I talk in my book about the fact that I think another thing that, that women should keep in mind is that, you know, they should, they should try to keep the sexual aspect of the relationship something of a challenge for the guy, right? Don't make it automatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm not trying to suggest any elaborate games playing, but in the sense that even once you've slept with him, that doesn't mean every time you see him, you have to have sex with him again. One thing they found is that if sex becomes too regular and too predictable, dopamine levels naturally sag over time, and so the guy will feel sort of less passion mm-hmm. and, and kind of, you know, that less, less of that chemical kind of love. Right. And so I think it's a good idea for a woman just to introduce an element of challenge where the guy is constantly trying to sort of demonstrate his affection, his, his love, in order to, let's say, and I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to suggest a quid pro quo, right? He has to do certain things in order to get there. Right, right. I'm trying to suggest that you, you treat it in a way in which he doesn't start to take you or sex with you for granted. Right, so it's like positive partial reinforcement. Exactly. <laughs> I wrote an article on that. That's why I know all about that. <laughs> um, now, you also say, and I found this interesting, that men fall in love faster, and yet women are more pragmatic when it comes to love. Isn't that funny? Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. They found, and this is not true for all men. I mean, some t- men tend to be more cynical, but men do tend to be the more romantic, fall in love fast, and women do tend to be more skeptical. And again, this goes back to evolution, where for men, of course, it, it, there's a payoff to sort of falling in love fast and being passionate and seducing a woman and sleeping with her, right? Because you get that genetic, potential genetic payoff of, of a, you know, a baby with your genes. Mm-hmm. Women who have to carry that whole burden uh, have sort of been, over time, have evolved to be a little more realistic about it and to realize that you know, whatever happens, they're potentially stuck with this long-term burden of raising a child. And so they're a little less likely, ironically, even though they're seen as the more romantic sex, to be sucked away by everything and to forget about all practical considerations. Good. See, we're finding out all (laughs) kinds of things about guys we didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) And and then you also say, and this is bad for me, uh, men value uh, intelligence and ambition only if they do not exceed their own intelligence and ambition. Well, this is, I have to say, this is one of those sad aspects where I feel like our culture has outraced our evolution, mm-hmm. right, in the sense that now that you have women who are very successful and highly educated and all those other things, this has created some weird problems, I think, for women at that end of the dating scale, like a woman, let's say, who has an advanced degree and earns a big salary. Most guys, not all of them, but most guys are threatened by women who earn more than they do, who have more education than they do who are more ambitious than they are. And so this is a real problem for very successful professional women. Um, I had, I, I don't, there's, there's no great answer to this. I mean, I think this is one of those kind of sad uh, paradoxes of the modern dating world where, you know, women who become too successful career-wise can find themselves facing this almost minuscule dating pool mm-hmm. because, you know, if, 
let's say a woman has a master's, well then, you know, a lot of men with just a college degree won't date her. And let's say she earns, you know, $200,000 a year. Well, then a lot of guys earning like, you know, $50,000 a year won't date her. And so, and, and let's say a woman, uh, you know, meets her male counterpart. Well, you know, he's willing to date her, of course, but he's also willing to date, let's say, a woman who's 10 years younger and hasn't spent all that time getting the degree and having the career success. So right. uh, for professional, successful professional women, it's, it's a tough dating world, I think, out there. Do you think also maybe because these women, because they're so, um, you know, intellectual and they're always in their brain, that they can't switch off when they're a woman and return to just being a woman and being more emotional? Well, it's funny. That is, a, you know, they have found that one problem, studies have shown that, that um, there are certain things that if you talk about them too much, it actually is counterproductive, mm-hmm. that uh, we our, our talk actually confuses the issue. And they've done this and looked at all sorts of things. And one of the areas that I think occurs, and women are really susceptible to this, is if women are the type to get to go with their friends and endlessly dissect men and relationships. Uh-huh. I know it's very fun to do this, yes. but this is actually, in general, not very good for your relationship. Mm-hmm. And what they think is if you do it too much, you actually make it harder to develop that sort of gut-level, intuitive instinct of whether or not you want to be with that guy, that all the talk kind of confuses the issue. So, uh, you know, I know a lot of women like to do this, but my advice would be actually to... Tone you know, it down. You can't talk about them all, but, but don't, you know, don't pick over the new guy for two and a half hours. <laughs> just not a good idea. And yet we love doing it so much. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, this is, women tend to be more verbal than men, so they like to do this, and it just has, it's, it's a real, it's, it's a real problem. I know. I mean, we analyze every little thing. I mean, I'm surprised that 99% of the CIA is not all women. <laughs> you know, <laughs> perhaps they're worried they would read too much into it. Ah, uh, that's true too. Uh, now, on a lighter note, you mentioned something about lipstick uh, that women should always wear lipstick, which is funny because I've had that on my website for years. I've said, you know, like, what advice would you give to women? And I said, always wear lipstick. <laughs> and I've actually done a study about this, and, and they found that showing men the same picture of woman with and without lipstick, she's judged significantly more attractive with lipstick on. See, and I didn't know that, but I just knew. And, and, you know, my guess would be, again, this is one of those kind of subtle evolutionary cues that the lip color is often an indication of youth, that women tend to have, you know, brighter, fuller lips when they're younger, and lipstick just helps give that, that, that look. Right, okay, so we're not talking about black lipstick. <laughs> no, <laughs> you could probably wear a lipstick in a certain way, which would be counterproductive. Right, right, right yeah. It has to be pink or red. Uh, now, you also say that men with feminine traits make better husbands. So which feminine traits are we talking about here? Well, you know, I think it's all the things that you would expect, right? I mean, this, these are kind of men who would probably be willing more, more open to talking about uh, with women about themselves, about their, their relationship, more willing to help around the house, more interested in, let's say, some of the things you might more traditionally think of as, as female things. You know, I, I think it's, if a woman can find a man who... who you know, you, we can all think of the hyper-masculine stereotype of the guy who only watches football. Mm-hmm. And drinks I'm not trying to suggest all those men are bad partners, but studies show that the guys who have both masculine and feminine traits, so the guy who, you know, does maybe does those things, but also likes to cook with his, his girlfriend or his wife, also likes to read the same sorts of books, that that's the kind of guy who will make a better husband in general. So then does that mean that women with, ma- with some masculine traits might make better wives? Well, they found that men actually prefer not hyper-feminine women, but women who have both feminine and masculine qualities as well. Uh-huh. And I think this is potentially an optimistic finding for how we're evolving to be, you know, better at monogamy. Um, 
you know, the, the kind of hyper-masculine, hyper-feminine ideals that we carry around with us don't match up as neatly with what people actually want as we think they do. Right. Yeah, what people say they want and what they actually react to are usually two different things. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the funny things that the research shows. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that what people say they're looking for in a partner or in a relationship in someone of the opposite, opposite sex often does not match up with what they really look for. That, that, and this is one of the funny things. That, that your friend is in some ways, they've found says, does a better job of predicting what you would like in a partner and also how long you might stay together with someone than you yourself do. Oh, wow. So it's more important to get your friend's opinions then. Well, that's, that's, this is the tricky thing, right? So don't dissect the boyfriend for two and a half hours at brunch, but it's not a bad idea to ask your friend, you know, what kind of guy do you think I would like and I would be good with? Because your friends actually often have a better, more accurate picture of you than you yourself do. I mean, we, we sort of constantly engage in little acts of self-deception that, of course, we don't realize that we're doing. So it's, it's very useful to have good friends who know us well to help kind of give us a, a basic sort of check to, to what we might be interested in and what we might look for. Yeah, I know it's funny because uh, my, my friends always think that I should be with some guy that looks like he walked off the cover of uh, Esquire, you know, a professional <laughs> with a suit, uh-huh. and I totally do not date those guys. See, maybe you should try one. I know. If we're telling you, maybe you need to give it a try. I know. You, maybe that's why I'm still single, because I don't date the guys my friends think I should be dating. <laughs> <laughs> one day. Um, now, also, in terms of testosterone, it seems that if guys have more testosterone, they're more likely to cheat. So do you know what some traits of a guys that have a lot of testosterone would be? Well, see, this is one of the funny things. Well, this will probably lead us into many complicated areas, but... Uh, you know, it's interesting that you, that you bring that up. I mean, we're just talking about women liking men who have feminine qualities. I mean, the funny thing is that in some ways what we look for changes even over the course of a month, that women at peak fertility look for a more masculine, more dominant man, and during low fertility periods they look for a man who has more of those feminine qualities and who's more likely to commit long-term. Mm-hmm. And evolutionary psychologists think that the reason for this is that at peak fertility, what a woman becomes mostly interested about, and, and I should say, you know, we keep talking about this, almost all of this is occurring subconsciously. Like, women don't consciously think, like, oh, now I'm at peak fertility, I'm going for the masculine guy. This is, this is all subconscious, but they think that what happens is at peak fertility, what women become mainly interested in is a guy with good genes. And when they think good genes, they think that kind of masculine ideal that we have in mind, right? Mm-hmm. Someone with a strong jaw, big strapping guy, dominant, you know. Mm. But this is not necessarily the kind of guy who will make the best partner, right? He may not even be the type of guy who's willing to commit. Right. So then during low fertility periods, they look for that other kind of guy, right? That guy who seems much more likely that he'd be a good dad, right? Maybe not the best genes, but much more likely to stay around and help raise the kids. So, okay, that's a, that was a long that was a long <laughs> wind up, but now let's get to your question. Uh-huh. So, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, there there are certain things that they found that that vary among men. I mean, testosterone is one. Although the funny thing is, men's testosterone varies uh, widely over the course of any given day, and they found that also his his relationship status will change things. So, a guy once he gets married, his testosterone his testosterone will drop, and if he has kids, his testosterone will drop even more. If he thinks his wife's cheating on him, his testosterone will ratchet back up. <laughs> so, so testosterone is actually highly uh-huh. sensitive to what's going on in his social environment. Uh, but they found other things, uh, certain genetic mar- markers that suggest that some men are much more likely to cheat than other men, that they basically have sort of a greater appetite for risk-taking behavior, whether that, that comes to gambling or drinking or cheating on a spouse. 
Um, and so it seems like some men do, I think about 30% have this variant of the gene, have a greater propensity to do that. Um, they've also found that, this is going to get a little arcane, but there's, there's something called vasopressin, which has a lot to do with how committed men become to their partner. Mm-hmm. And men have different lengths of vasopressin receptors. And so that gives them a sort of a different tendency of how committed they become. And so far, and this is by no means definitive, they found at least 17 different lengths in terms of the vasopressin receptors. Mm. So that's 17 different, wow. you know, <laughs> variations on how committed guys oh, can no. be. So, so there's, there are definitely genetic components to how, how committed a guy will be and how long, how, how willing he is to commit to, to a long-term relationship. That being said, you know, none of this genetic stuff is definitive, right? That's no reason to say that uh, a guy with, let's say, the, the risk-taking variant of the gene why he can't be raised in a way that would make him just as committed and just as loving a partner as someone who doesn't have it. But it is, it does give him a greater tendency in that direction. Right. Do you think that someone... Sorry, that was a long answer. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that someone, a guy that gets married young um, and then, you know, obviously gets divorced because it's not a good idea to get married young, that he's more likely to be the type of guy to commit in the future? Well, you know, they've done studies where they found that women uh, at certain periods of their fertility actually prefer, uh, single women that show up at parties prefer guys who are in relationships. And they think it's because those women see those men as, as already having demonstrated that they're able to commit. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if it makes the men more willing to commit, but uh, it, perhaps women who date them look at them and say, oh, this guy's already been married once. Right. He's shown that he'll go all the way. So right, right, right. He might be, be a good partner. Yeah, exactly. And now, why uh, is the 20-second hug important? Well, this is kind of a funny thing where, you know, I, I think you'd be surprised. 20 seconds is really long, right? Yeah, I mean, is. That's, that's a long hug <laughs> to give someone. But what they hug someone for 20 seconds, it releases oxytocin into the system, which sort of floods you with a feeling of well-being, sense of trust. And so they found that if you hug someone for 20 seconds, you sort of have this feeling towards them. It gives you these very warm feelings towards the other person. So... The 20-second hug, again, <laughs> it's context is everything. If you're in a relationship, things are going well, a 20-second hug might be really nice. It yeah. might be a way to solidify the bond. A first date, I think a 20-second hug, it might come across a little creepy. Yes. <laughs> You've got to slowly work in that 20-second hug. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> Not right away. Well, They've thank- also found that, for instance, four, minute, four minutes of, of direct eye gazing can mm-hmm. be very powerful. But again... You know, you have to be in in the relationship a little bit before you can bust out the four minute eye gaze, or they're <laughs> going to think you're crazy. Yeah, that might maybe like six months into the relationship or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and give them some advance warning. They're going to be like, "Why are you staring at me? Come on!" Well, you tell them, "Listen, I want to do this little experiment." That's right. And then you sit them down. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been very enlightening with all these studies that you found about. Um, oh, Yeah, so again, the book is Decoding Love, Why It Takes 12 Frogs to Find a Prince and Other Revelations from the Science of Attraction, and the website, of course, decodinglove.com or andrewtreats.com, right? That is correct. Okay, all right, well, thanks for being on. Take care. Thank you for having me on. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. Okay, and um, so, let's see. I was on the news in Philadelphia uh, just this past week, uh, ABC News. And if you want to find the link to that, well, you'll have to be a member of my Facebook <laughs> Facebook page or my uh, Twitter, which, of course, the link is on the LA Talk Radio page. Of course, I was talking about cougars. 
And um, so check that out. And what else? Uh, let's see. I have my website, of course, which is theartoflove.net. And I have a weekly newsletter that I send out from there. But you got to sign up, of course. And you'll find out what is going on with me besides, of course, my multiple TV appearances. <laughs> and again, that's theartoflove.net. We also have lessonsoflove.net, which is my website from my book, which is Lucia's Lessons of Love, where I answer uh, the most asked dating and relationship questions. The things that people always wonder about, I give the answer to. So it's like a reference book, like a little encyclopedia, I guess. Uh, this woman, she bought the book. She bought the hardcover version because it's, it's an e-book. But I gave her a hardcover, and she's like, I have it on my coffee table, and I read it every week, and I agree with everything you said. I was like, damn. I said, can you put that in writing? It's like, why, do you, why are you reading it every week? <laughs> Even I'm not reading it every week. <laughs> so, um, and that is it for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I'd like to again thank my guest, Andrew Trees, with his book, Decoding Love. I think that was... Uh, very helpful. See, all the things I always thought, I just kind of naturally know these things. I, you know, I knew you shouldn't be sleeping with guys right away, and I knew should, you should be wearing lipstick. <laughs> the two most important things I learned from today's interview. All right. Well, until next time, remember that love inspires, empowers, uplifts, and enlightens. You're listening to The Art of Love with your host, Lucia, right here on L.A. Talk Radio.